Good morning. Thank you so much for having me and for coming up. It's great to see all these new faces. Uh, and at home as well, thank you for letting me into your lounge room in a non-creepy way. Um, so if, if you were paying attention on Facebook, it was my birthday on Friday. Um, I turned 40 for the third time. So it's an interesting age 40 though, isn't it? Um, especially when you've been 40 for as long as I have now. Um, it's, it's a really kind of, it's a strange sort of middle ground age. Like I suppose statistically, I'm at the halfway point. I, you know, sort of by the life standards of, sort of, I mean, oh, warning, that, that was a shock, but yeah, anyway. Um, so I'm kind of at this halfway point, so I'm not that old yet. Like, again, statistically, I've still got a lot of decades ahead of me, and I would imagine some of my better ones, I would hope. But at the same time, I'm not that young. Like, I've actually got a little bit of life experience behind me. I've got a few decades behind me. I'm a child of the 80s. I mean, who was around in the 80s? Like, that was kind of my era as a young kid. It was a strange time, really. I mean, that's a time before the internet, obviously, um, where seatbelts and, and helmets were optional. Um, and just show of hands, how many kids, kids of the 80s had to share a seatbelt with a sibling at least at one point? Yeah, that was, that was me as well. It was in a Datsun, so the seatbelt didn't really matter anyway. <laughs> it was just such a different time. You know, I was, for, for us, listening to music, you listen to music on a cassette. You know, there was no streaming, of course, you just had cassettes. And now, if you could afford an album, you would have the album of your favourite singer, but generally you couldn't, so you'd find someone that did have it and you'd make a copy of theirs, like before the days of piracy. Or, if you were really patient, you'd wait till the song played on the radio, and you'd sit there with your finger above record, just waiting for your song to come on, and then you'd hit record, and, and you had your own copy, and eventually you'd have a mixed tape. And that was really, really good, of course, until the batteries in the Walkman died, and Kylie Minogue's voice just doesn't sound the same with dying batteries. It's, it's not a pretty sound. Then, of course, unless, of course, the tape player actually blew the tape up and all the film would just sort of pump out and be spread all through your tape player. Now, you could always fix that with a pencil, but it was just never the same again. Uh, so I was thinking about this. If I, ever get, I think if I gave my kids a cassette and a pencil and I said, here, work this out, they'd be like, I know what the pencil is, but I don't understand what I'm doing here. This, this makes no sense at all. Watching movies on VHS. Um, who had beta, by the way? Just couple of you? Yeah, you poor things. <laughs> it was a bit of, I think there's a bit of discrimination around beta. Because you go to the video shop and everything was VHS except for that back corner that had the section for the paupers that only had beta. That was like the small selection that they put out with, with beta movies. But uh, again, you couldn't really buy movies and so you'd have to wait until they come on TV and you'd do your own recording of it. Now, if you're really clever, you'd hit pause through the commercials, and that way you've got a clean film all the way through. If you weren't so clever, you'd forget to unpause it. And then you come back three days later and you go to watch the movie, getting all excited, you get your popcorn ready, you're already pumped up to watch this movie, and you get to the first commercial, and then it will cut to whatever you've recorded over. And it's like your whole world just collapsed around you. Or you'd use, accidentally use the tape that had the tab broken out. Anyone remember what the tab was for? Yeah, yeah, you learned that lesson the hard way, didn't you? Sticky tape would fix it, but of course you'd have to remember to put the sticky tape on. Um, there was, there was, it's changed a lot. You know, I remember our first phone was a dial phone. Remember the ones with the, with the dial? 
And then I think it was in the 90s, we had one of the push-button phones. That changed everything because you didn't have to remember numbers then. You could actually pre-program 10 phone numbers into the phone and just press a button and would dial that person. That's stuff you saw on Beyond 2000. Remember that show? I was thinking this morning, I'd love to go back and re-watch that show just to see how things turned out. I mean, that was, there was some amazing stuff on there, like computers and calculators. It was just, what a fascinating show. Anyway, so I'm not that, old, I'm not that old, young either. Uh, I, I've got enough life behind me where, you know, I've been, I've had a few careers, you know, I've done a few things. I've been together with Rachel for 23 years now. How have you done that? 23 years, that is a long time. Anyway, so it's a funny age, 40, because you do get sort of reflective. You know, you kind of look back at all the experiences and sort of tie them all together. And I think one of the things that I've, I've found is that over the years, I've, I've come to a better understanding of who I am. I, I know the things that I like. I know, I, I feel like I've got a bit of a sense of th the trajectory of my life. I feel like I'm sort of in a place now where I guess God's moved me to what maybe feels like a bit of a starting line, but it feels like I'm at a place now where I've got things in alignment. You know, I've got a sense of I'm on the right track now. And I think particularly where I find this is in my Christianity. So I became a Christian at the age of 19 um, and have been ever since. Um, so I've probably been over half my life now I've been a Christian. But what I have noticed is that from the time that I was saved to where I am now, my understanding of Christianity has changed quite a lot. At least in the sense of what it means to be a Christian. How do you do Christianity? Um, I, actually, I should mention, I don't have a title for my message this morning. If you're taking notes, I don't have a title. I didn't get that far with the message. So, reflections of an old man or something, if you want to write something down. I don't know. But anyway... Um, so for me, Christianity, when I was first saved, if I could describe it in a word, it would be striving. It was effort. It was the measure of your holiness was really a measure of how busy you were. Were you at every single meeting every night of the week? Were you at all the services? Were you involved in absolutely everything that your church could possibly do, and maybe then some, that's about where the peak of Christianity was. It was all, for me at least, it was about titles. It was about being on rosters. It was about getting the opportunities. It was always about being seen. Because for me, at least as far as I was concerned, that's what it meant to be a Christian. That's what it meant to serve the Lord. It was actually keeping myself so busy that I just couldn't sustain it anymore. So one you, 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 I sort of have grown up quite a bit. I remember back then, um, I'd, you know, we'd have meetings, and all the, a lot of the parents with young kids would say, oh, we can't get to the meeting because we've got kids, and it's, it's very hard. And in my self-righteousness, I would think, you backsliders, how could you not be at every meeting? Kids are no excuse. Kids are easy. Just put them in a corner somewhere. Then I had kids. I've since repented. <laughs> but for me, that was Christianity. And that's all good and well until about 10 years later when I hit the wall and completely burnt out. Uh, I think the only word I could use to describe it was just a total breakdown in every possible way. But God in his grace has kind of rebuilt 
I suppose, what my understanding of Christianity is. And that really has come a lot through just coming to understand the Bible better, coming to understand particularly Paul a lot better and, and what Paul's life was like and, and sort of how he came to understand what Christianity was. So I wanted to talk a bit about Paul and I'm just going to talk about Corinthians because it's just what I do, it's what you've come to expect by now. But Paul's a fascinating guy. You may not have realized this, but when he had his Damascus Road encounter, so I guess you might say when he got saved or when he became a Christian, he was about 27. You know, it was still quite, it was an older sort of, convert, particularly in a time when the average life expectancy was about 35, 27, you kind of get into your geriatric years in that, in that context. So he was about 27 when he had that encounter. And for Paul, the, the biggest change for him, I think was a little bit like mine, in realizing that pleasing God wasn't about striving. Because for Paul, that's what faith was. Paul was a Pharisee. And to be a Pharisee meant that you had to have a persona of holiness. Now, that's not to say that he didn't serve the Lord and love the Lord and, and have a life devoted to God. But so much of it was, it was a persona. It was a facade. Jesus is really appropriate when he calls the Pharisees hypocrites. The, the word hypocrite is a Greek word, which literally means an actor. So when you go to the theater, you see the hypocrites performing for you. And what characterizes the hypocrite is that they wear a mask. And so you've seen the masks at the old Greek comedies and tragedies, these big exaggerated features. The reason why they've got such big features is because when you're sitting up the back of a 20,000 seat theater, you need to be able to see who the characters are. And also those big mouths that you see, like the big kind of, they're megaphones to help project the voice up to the back rows. So Jesus says, you hypocrites, which is appropriate because that's what their faith was. You are putting on the facade or a mask of holiness, but the real you is actually behind the mask. And so for Paul, that was the big shift in his thinking. That serving God isn't putting on a mask. It isn't about a public persona. But it actually took him quite a while to realize that. Paul's first missionary journey, when he took off to Galatia on his first journey, that didn't happen until he was my age. He was about 43 when he had his, set off on his first missionary journey. And his whole missionary career, from the time that he left for Galatia at the age of 43 until the time he was arrested in Jerusalem, was only 10 years. Just 10 years. And in that 10 years, he set up a church that we're still in today. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament in that 10 years. But what God did with him in that 10 years, at least how I read it, took him 43 years to prepare. 43 years of preparation for 10 years of ministry. But what are 10 years? Rachel's been reading a book at the moment about gardening. Now, that's how you can tell you're getting old when you're reading books about gardening. But anyway, this particular author, I'm sorry to steal the analogy, it's just too good, Rachel, but what this guy says, he says, when he plants a fruit tree, he doesn't take fruit from it for the first few seasons. 
Instead, what he does is he cuts all the fruit off every time it tries to grow fruit because he doesn't want the energy to be put into growing fruit. He'd rather it to go into growing the roots. And only when the roots are fully established, then he'll let the fruit start to grow. That's a brilliant analogy. I mean, you can take that free. I, I took it from Rachel, so I'll just give it to you as well. It's a brilliant analogy because that's really how God works. I remember as a 19-year-old Christian thinking, I'm ready to go. God, I'm ready to take on the world. Come on, God, it's been six months. Why aren't I the next Billy Graham? What's going on here? Why, why are you waiting, God? I'm ready to go. 20 years later, I look back and go, you idiot. <laughs> you just weren't even... It takes time to prepare. And so I guess I feel like I'm coming to a point where God has been spending this time preparing for whatever this next decade is going to look like. And it's kind of exciting. I don't know what it's going to hold, but it's kind of exciting. And so Paul was writing to the Corinthians, and he writes to the Corinthians, now he's about the age of 50. So actually pretty amazing for someone in that time. I mean, if you live to 60 in the ancient world, you really are a walking miracle. So to be 50 is a pretty fair effort. So Paul's really in his old age by now. And he's writing to the Corinthians, and he's writing on what he now understands to be what it means to be a Christian, how to actually do this Christian life. And it's remarkable how much that's changed from what you see of these Pharisee days. So if you've got your Bibles, we're at Corinthians 4. Just a bit of background for this particular passage. So at this point in the church in Corinth, um, there's been a lot of divisions that are occurring primarily over who their favorite teacher is. So Paul had been there for 18 months and he'd established a church there which was a really good effort. Uh, but the thing about Paul was that at least as far as the Corinthians were concerned, he wasn't a great preacher. He wasn't very charismatic. In fact, what made it worse for Paul was that he was a leather worker. He was an artisan. Preaching was kind of his part-time thing. And, you know, anyone who worked with their hands in the ancient world wasn't seen to be very good, very upright, because they work with their hands. They're not putting their time into getting an education, to developing wisdom. And so for the Corinthians, at least as far as they were concerned, Paul, you know, he was okay, but he wasn't that great. But then along comes a guy by the name of Apollos, and Apollos is a completely different kettle of fish. Apollos is a professional itinerant minister. That's what he does. He's not a guy that travels around making tents and then preaching on the side. This is a guy who is a full-time paid preacher. He's spent his whole life preparing for ministry. And he's really good. I mean, he is amazing. Trained in one of the best schools of oratory in the world, in Alexandria. Trained in all of the wisdom, Greek and Hebrew wisdom, this guy knew all of it. He knew every word that ended in ology and could use them all in a sermon. I mean, he was just amazing. And so when he came along, he just blew the Corinthians away. Just astounded them. To the point where an entire faction of the church started to brand themselves as the I follow Apollos faction. You guys follow Paul, that's fine. We've got our man, Apollos. We're very happy with him. Thank you very much. And so, in fact, they actually write to Paul because Apollos wasn't there at the time, and they write to Paul and say, hey, when's Apollos coming back? We want him back and not you, Paul. That's got to hurt as a pastor. 
the problem is that the way that they had measured Paul and Apollos was by a standard which had nothing to do with Christianity. It was a standard familiar with them in their Greek world, but had nothing to do with Christianity, and certainly when it came to Christian preaching. But because of that evaluation, they determined that Apollos was by far the superior minister. We don't need Paul anymore. He just gave us milk. We're ready for the solid food of Apollos. Bring that on. So Paul has to write and respond to this. So he spends the whole of chapter 3 just using all of these different metaphors to explain how his ministry actually is fundamental to what they need. Why he is still totally necessary, even for this Apollos faction. But then in chapter 4, he really gets to the crux of his response. And he actually goes so far as to call this guy out. He speaks directly to the head of this Apollos faction, and he calls the guy out and he says, here's my response to you, the one that's sitting in judgment of me right now. He says, this is what it means to be a Christian minister. So he says in verse 1, This then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now you're not going to like to hear this, but one of the most common uh, epithets, one of the most common descriptions that Paul has for Christians is that we're slaves. It's like the one thing that he always calls Christians. In fact, he does it twice here. He says, first of all, that we're servants of Christ. The word he uses here is the word hyperites. Now, what that generally referred to was somebody who served a superior officer, typically always a slave. Um, usually it was the person who served a superior officer in the military. And we actually still have that up in, even in modern militaries. It's called the military batman. Not batman as in the dark knight, but batman as in the guy who serves a superior officer. So if you're a, a lieutenant or a captain or a major or whatever, you would have a young private, very much a junior private, and it was their job to do whatever you want them to do. That was their role. They would iron your uniforms, they would drive you around, they would make you breakfast, whatever it is you needed from them, that's their job. Now, if you're a junior private, it's not a bad gig to have because you're not getting shot at. So that's probably not a bad way to, to be spending a war, but that was your role. And so in the ancient world, Paul says, that's the type of slave we are. As ministers, as apostles, our job is just to do whatever the master says. That's all we can do. He says, but just in case you missed the point, he says, we're actually a different kind of slave as well. He says, we're stewards of the mystery of God. Now, the word he uses here is the word oikonomos. Now, you hear the word oikos getting thrown around a lot. It's kind of one of our things. If you're new here, you'll understand eventually. But the word oikos, of course, means a house, a home. It means the household, not just the building itself, but everything that goes on inside it. Well, the oikonomos was the person who managed the house. Now, that was never the head of the house. That wasn't his job. He was too busy for that. He was too important to be looking after the affairs of the house. You get a slave for that. And if you've got a really big house and a, you know, a big estate with lots of, just lots of things to do, you have lots of slaves. Now, you're not going to look after them yourself. You put a, someone in charge of the slaves, and that was a, a senior slave. 
So Jesus talks about this all the time. He says, you know, a master goes off on some trip and he leaves the manager in charge of the household. That's who he's talking about. This is the guy who's the chief amongst the slaves. And it's his job to make sure the slaves are fed and looked after and that are generally doing their job. Because that way when the master comes back, if anything's wrong, he knows who to blame. Now the role of that person, of this oikonomos, is the job itself is called an oikonomia. This is more just a little FYI, but this is where we get our word economics from. Economics is at its core management of resources. And so the oikonomia was the management of the household resources. So that was the job. And so this person's whole job was whatever the master required, but in looking after the rest of the house. So Paul says, us as apostles, that's our role. We're in God's house. He's the master of the house. We just make sure things are happening. And that includes you, Corinthians, who in this little analogy are junior slaves. Now, if you're an elite Corinthian right now and you're looking down on Paul and he just called you a junior slave, I say this all the time. There's a reason why we have a second Corinthians. Because first Corinthians didn't work. And it was because of stuff like this that it didn't work. He says, that's our job. He says, verse 2, though, now it is required that those who have been given this trust, given a trust, must prove faithful. Just hang on that word for a minute. Notice he doesn't say, he doesn't say successful. They must prove successful. Or that they must prove famous. Or that they must prove influential. Or prosperous. Notice he doesn't use any of those terms. In fact, it's got nothing to do with this ministry. He says the only requirement, the only thing we have to prove at the end of the day is that we were faithful. Did we do the thing that God asked us to do? That's it. Did we consistently, every time, do exactly what God asked us to do? doesn't even matter if we got it wrong. doesn't even if we matter if we make a mistake because we are going to. He says, but were we faithful in our service to God in seeking what God wanted us to do and just doing it to the best of our ability? That is the only proof that he's looking for. And the master of that house in Jesus' parables, when he comes back, what does he say to the servants? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've proved yourself in the small things. Now you'll be trusted with much more. And that's it. End of the story. He goes on in verse 3, and this is where it gets really, wow, this is hardcore. He says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Now, again, he's called out somebody in the room. He's called out this particular head of the faction, but he's also kind of incorporating everybody at this point. He says, I don't care what your judgment of me is. We go, hang on a second. Shouldn't we care what people think? No. No, not really. Certainly not in this case, because their whole evaluation of Paul is completely wrong. If you're going to set up a set of categories over here, which have no relationship whatsoever to Christianity, and then evaluate me by those categories, it's a meaningless evaluation. Because it has nothing to do with who I am. Paul says, that's what you're doing over here. It's a worthless judgment. It means nothing. 
By those standards, yeah, I'm not very good. But those aren't the standards God's looking for. All he cares about is faithfulness. Was I faithful? Judge me by that. See, the problem with people's judgments is that, well, one, they're often by wrong categories. Secondly, people don't see the whole picture. They don't know the whole context of your life. They might have a perception of it based on the little bit of information they have, but really there's not much. Like everything we see on social media, oh, everyone's got an opinion about everything, even though we've got no idea what we're talking about, but we've all got opinions. Those are worthless. Or, even worse, a lot of the time people's judgments are because they feel inferior and so want to bring you down to make themselves feel better. It's very rare that somebody's judgments are actually worth taking on board. And I would venture to suggest it would only be a very few people in your life that know you almost as well as you know yourself. But I'd even caution then, take it with a grain of salt. But Paul goes on, he says, my conscience is clear. Sorry, he goes on and says, indeed, I do not even judge myself. You go, what? I don't even judge myself. Forget about your judgments, I don't even judge myself. Hang on a second. Isn't, don't we say to people, you know, don't worry about what other people think, what do you think about yourself? How do you see yourself? Okay. But have you ever considered that maybe we don't have the best judgment of ourselves either? Because humans tend to sit on the scale somewhere between total narcissist and totally insecure. Total self-deprecation. We don't actually generally sit right somewhere in the middle, unless you're a really, really healthy person who spent a lot of time with Chris Thornton and she's sort of brought you to the middle somewhere. But generally we sit somewhere along here. Down here, everything we do is wrong. There's nothing we can do that's right because everything about us is so terrible. Whereas up here, everything we do is basically on the level of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus died on the cross, I'm about the next best thing. You're welcome. I think a lot of the time we're actually not the best judges of ourselves. And Paul even knows that. Paul the Pharisee who says to the Philippians, I was at a point in my holiness where I was basically God. And then God humbled me and made me realize how stupid my life was. He says... I guess by way of qualification, this is how I judge myself. He says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. This is profound. He says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. He says, everything I've done, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I can see, I did correctly. But I'm also aware of my, my own self-blindness to not realize that I've probably made a lot of mistakes along the way as well. But everything I did was with the best intentions. Everything I did was to serve God. But I also realize that I'm human. He goes on and he says, it is the Lord who judges me. Why is that important? Well, because nobody knows you better than God. No one. 
In the Proverbs, Proverbs 16.2, it says, it says, all persons' ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. That's what God's looking for. What is your motive? What is your heart in doing the things that you're doing? Paul says, by that measure, my, my doesn't mean I'm not guilty. I want to read a quote from George Washington. By the way, we saw Hamilton last weekend, Chris. I have opinions, so we'll talk after, over coffee. It was, it was very good, though. So, yes, that's after. This is from George Washington, so first president of the USA. This is his closing speech, his farewell speech to the nation. And this is the last paragraph of his closing speech. He's writing this at the age of 64. Okay, this is after a long and pretty tough life and eight years of being the first president of this new country. He says this, Though in reviewing the incidents of my administration, I am unconscious of intentional error, I am nevertheless too sensible of my defects not to think it probable that I may have committed many errors. He says, whatever they may be, I fervently beseech the Almighty to avert or mitigate the evils to which they may tend. I shall also carry with me the hope that my country will never cease to view them with indulgence, and that, after 45 years of my life dedicated to its service with an upright zeal, the faults of incompetent abilities will be consigned to oblivion, as myself must soon be to the mansion of rest. He says, I've served this nation for my whole life. And I'm pretty sure I did most things right, but I know who I am, and I know that I made mistakes. He says, what I hope is that one day when the generations are looking back on what I did, they would take the context of everything that I did and put the mistakes within that broader context and understand them as errors of a, of a fallen person. And so when I look at the way that God, I think, looks at what we do. I think that's how he sees us. That he looks at our lives and he says, of course you made mistakes, that's why I died for you. But what is the trajectory of your life? What is the heart and the motivation behind the decisions that you make? Are they to serve me or to serve yourself? See, Christianity, from what I can gather, is just walking humbly before the Lord. Just being humble with who we are. I know the things that I'm good at, and I'm very conscious of the things that I'm not very good at. I know, the, I know the things that I do well, and I'm also very conscious of the fact that I probably do a lot of things wrong. But over all of that, I, I'm very aware of the fact that I know that what I do is first and foremost for him. So Paul finishes off, therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So if I was to conclude this, 20-odd years of reflection on this Christian life, at least from where I stand, it'll be this. Do what you're asked to do. Do it faithfully. Stop trying to do what everyone else is trying to do. Stop trying to do somebody else's ministry. Stop trying to do somebody else's calling. Figure out what God has for you. And it's not even the big picture. Oh, God, what is my whole life about? That's too big and scary. Start here. God, today, what do you need me to do? 
just deal with today. Didn't Jesus say something about that? Seek to please God in everything. As much as you understand what pleases God, seek to please him in those things. And if you're wrong on that, he'll show you that as well. And then at the end of it, work for his reward and his reward only. Because at the end of the day, that's the only reward that matters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for grace. Thank you for this life that you've called us to, whatever that might look like for each and every one of us. God, we we are going to come into this with a promise that we will make so many mistakes and have so much brokenness. But God, your grace is so much bigger than all of those things. And so, Father, today we just ask you this simple question. What do you need us to do today? And then give us the, the grace and the strength to do that. And then worry about tomorrow when tomorrow comes. And God, over all of this, I pray that in everything that we do, we would seek only your pleasure. We would seek only your reward. That it wouldn't be for our own gratification or to keep others happy. Though that might be an outcome, that might be a secondary product of ultimately working to please you. Father, thank you for this life. Thank you for your spirit that empowers it. Thank you for your grace that washes over it. And thank you for your incredible gifting and calling that you've put on every single one of us to do that thing that you've called us uniquely to do. Father, I pray for every one of us that we would walk in that and continue to walk in that path so that one day we would hear those glorious words, well done, good and faithful servant. In your incredible name, amen.